2014. We'll look ahead to a busy year in the solar system this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. The Society's senior editor and ace reporter, Emily Lakdawalla, becomes our main guest today. She'll join me for an expanded segment based on her annual rundown of what to expect in the coming year. And with 24 spacecraft exploring or in transit throughout our solar neighborhood, it will definitely be a whirlwind tour. Bruce Betts will be here to feed my affection for the movie Gravity. Yeah, I know Neil Tyson and other smart people found fault with the film, but it sure made low Earth orbit look pretty. Anyway, that's about 20 minutes away when we begin What's Up. Bill Nye, the science guy, is here, too. Here's our very appropriate lead-in to his segment. It's a successful launch from Cape Canaveral that took place on January 6th, just a few hours before I recorded these words. Three, two, one, zero. We have liftoff of the Falcon 9. Falcon 9 has cleared the towers. T plus 60 seconds, altitude 6 kilometers, velocity 266 meters per second, downrange distance 1.9 kilometers. SpaceX sending a communication satellite into geostationary orbit for Thailand. Here's the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill, it's a new year, and yet some of the same old challenges face us. I guess we could start with this uh, new era of competition in getting satellites into orbit. You're talking about Ariane space in Europe. I am. They're launching more satellites than anybody. By far, apparently. But now this, this little upstart in Hawthorne, California, is apparently um, shaking things up. Uh, SpaceX. Indeed. Everybody, I think, is surprised to learn how many launches there are every month, uh, up to 20. You know, back in the days, back in the early 1960s, there were hundreds of launches. And that's one of the concerns is the pace, how frequently launches occur. When you slow it down, the industry slows down and innovation happens more slowly. So it takes longer to get things done, like get a mission to Mars. And speaking of pace... You know, Scott Pace kind of got into it with uh, Good Lori Garver. Yeah. <clears throat> Lori Garver was the deputy administrator of NASA, everybody. And Scott Pace is, uh, works at the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University. And they are at odds of the value of the space launch system rocket, this great big rocket that U.S. Congress told NASA it had to build. So now the money's running out. They're building a great big rocket. They're building a new capsule to go on top of it, along with everything else NASA does. Our big concern at the Planetary Society is planetary science gets short shrift. The bill to make the space launch system very, very difficult to cancel hmm. uh, just passed in committee, right? It got through yeah. its first steps. That's That's huge. And the nice thing here, I guess, is that Lori, she's not with NASA anymore. She gets to speak her mind and she just thinks this is a mistake. When she was a NASA employee, she sure she did not speak this way. So yeah. this is, you know, this is why we have freedom of speech. This is how we change things. This is how we evaluate things. As people speak in their minds, especially knowledgeable people. So we're off to another rambunctious start this 2014. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Matt. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill Nye, the science guy. We're going to be going to Emily Lakdawalla. She looks forward to a uh, year full of planetary exploration. That's 2014 coming up. 
What's your favorite solar system target? How about your favorite mission? I don't think I could or would pick a particular favorite. For one thing, I don't want leaders of other missions to hold a grudge. Let's just say it's nice to be alive and aware in this golden age of robotic planetary exploration. Some would say, enjoy it while you can. Budgetary challenges threaten to severely restrict future missions and possibly even kill off a few of the spacecraft that are out there right now in the prime of their exploring lives. I don't know anyone who is better prepared to conduct us on a tour than our guest this week. Actually, she's our guest every week. Emily, it's always nice when you can join us for uh, an extended uh, visit. Emily Lakdawalla is, of course, the senior editor for the Planetary Society and our planetary evangelist. You have this uh, really nice new blog entry, as you uh, pretty much always do at the beginning of the year, that gives us a lot of what to look forward to with uh, planetary science in this new year of 2014. Let's start with the thing that you are most looking forward to. This is going to be the year of Rosetta. Finally, the European (laughs) Space Agency's Rosetta mission, its largest interplanetary mission, is finally going to approach its target, the comet colloquially known as Cherry Gary, for (laughs) Churyumov Gerasimenko. The scary part is that this is a spacecraft that has been asleep for about two and a half years in total hibernation. It's gone too far from the sun for its solar panels to power it. So the first thing that has to happen in order for the rest of this year to be great is for Rosetta to wake up. I think they've set three alarm clocks on this spacecraft to make sure that it doesn't hit the snooze button too many times. And on January 20th, it is supposed to wake up for the first time, get its solar panels oriented properly to be receiving the sunlight and begin attempts at communication with Earth. And let's all keep every single appendage crossed and hope that Rosetta makes contact with Earth again on January 20. (laughs) Got to be awfully sad if that doesn't happen, but I bet it will. They have had absolutely no contact with the spacecraft during this hibernation. I'm thinking of like New Horizons that we'll get to in a couple of minutes that they've been checking in with now and then. Yeah, New Horizons is nuclear-powered. It's got a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, actually a couple of them on board. But the European Space Agency does not currently have the capability to use nuclear power to run its spacecraft. It relies on solar power. And this spacecraft has gone too far from the sun for those panels to provide Mm. enough power to keep it awake. So it is actually in total hibernation, has not talked to Earth for about two and a half years. But assuming that everything goes well, and everything has gone great on this mission so far, they had beautiful flybys of Earth and Mars and two asteroids with amazing photos and other scientific data. They'll begin to approach their comet, sort of the beginning, middle part of this year. They'll enter orbit in August. And finally, toward the end of the year, they're going to put down a small lander named Philae and do science from the surface and also some from orbit to the lander, actually shooting radio through the comet in order to probe its interior. It's going to be one heck of a mission. I can't wait for it to happen. There are some great pictures ahead of us if all goes well. All right, let's turn to the rest of the solar system. It's really pretty amazing. As we talk about cutbacks in funding for planetary science missions, at least in the U.S., We have to remind people that we're talking about the future. There's an awful lot going on right now. There is. We're really at a peak, I think, in terms of solar system activity. There's a huge number of missions across the solar system. It's actually a lot like the 70s when there was nothing new being planned, and yet we had both Voyagers and the Vikings and everything going on. So right now, we have like 20 spacecraft exploring the solar system. A lot of them are pushing uh, their age, though. A lot of them are long past their warranties, but they're still turning in great science. One fine example of that 
his messenger at Mercury, which has already mapped the entire planet, has done amazing images and topography and, and other sorts of data. And now they're going back and doing imaging at much higher resolution in more colors in order to see some of Mercury's cool features in higher detail. What else is happening in the inner solar system? And I, I would include our moon with that. Well, we still have Venus Express at Venus in Akatsuki on the way to Venus, so it's going to be a while before it gets there. But then the action goes to the moon, and we have three spacecraft active there. I guess actually... No, that's not right. We have six spacecraft act active there, if you count them correctly. So let's go through them. There's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is continuing to shoot amazing photographs of the moon and, and take topographic data. We have a twin spacecraft mission called Artemis that is looking at the impact of the solar wind and Earth's magnetic and plasma environment. It's all a lot of stuff that I don't understand, but which actually has a lot to do with the MAVEN mission that's on its way to Mars. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There are uh, the Chang'e 3 lander and U-2 rover exploring the lunar surface, and the LADEE orbiter, which is currently sniffing the lunar atmosphere and, and tasting its dust. Both LADEE and Chang'e 3 will end their missions in all likelihood this year. LADEE, LADEE will definitely end its mission early this year. Chang'e 3, there's an outside possibility that it could last longer than its warranty, but the lunar thermal environment is an awfully difficult one for a spacecraft to survive. So its warranty is about three months. If we get double that, I'll be very pleased. Mm, and I'm sure that, that China will be as well. All right, let's move on out to the Red Planet, where there are a bunch of aging spacecraft senior citizens about to be joined by two new sisters. Of the five spacecraft currently at Mars, four are way beyond their warranties. Those include the Mars Odyssey Orbiter, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Express Orbiter, and the Opportunity Rover. Now, I have no particular reason to think that any of those things is going to go kaput this year, but especially Odyssey and Mars Express have both had some fairly serious computer problems over the last year or two. So I, I feel like it's it's hoping for too much to imagine that all four of them will be alive by the end of this year. But what Whatever they manage to do during this year, we should be very grateful for. Opportunity has, of course, recently started a brand new mission on the rim of Endeavor Crater at Mars, exploring more ancient rocks than it's ever studied before. And it's winter in the southern hemisphere for Opportunity, but the rover drivers have found her a nice north-facing slope where she's getting really <laughs> quite good amounts of power. So she's able to drive around and explore a lot more than, than she otherwise might be able to do at winter. Uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is doing some really cool work now where they're doing repeat imaging of various spots on Mars where they know change is taking place. Things like sand dunes blowing around in the wind and these gully-like features, these recurring slope lineae that seem to appear in certain seasons and lengthen in certain seasons and might be related to water actually flowing on the surface. They also have this really neat cadence where they use their wider-angle context camera to take large images, and they look for new things, particularly the dark splats of fresh impact craters. And then they follow up on them really quickly with the higher-resolution high-rise camera. And doing that, they've managed to find more than a dozen, maybe even two dozen now, fresh impact craters that actually have exposed ice sitting in their centers. So we're using impact craters as a probe to see what's beneath Mars's surface. And I expect to see more great science like that come out of Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter over the next year. Emily Lakdawalla's preview of solar system exploration in 2014 will continue in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society, speaking to you from Planet Fest 2012, the celebration of the Mars Science Laboratory rover Curiosity landing on the surface of Mars. This is taking us our next steps in following the water in the search for life to understand those two deep questions. Where did we come from? And are we alone? 
This is the most exciting thing that people do. And together, we can advocate for planetary science and, dare I say it, change the worlds. Hi, this is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your Place in Space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We continue our special extended visit with the one and only Emily Lakdawalla, Senior Editor and Planetary Evangelist for the Planetary Society. You can follow her blog at planetary.org. You can also watch her terrific new 40-minute video conversation with Jim Bell, leader of the imaging team for the Mars Exploration Rovers and author of Postcards from Mars. Lots of pretty pictures of the red planet and a terrific conversation. It's also at planetary.org. Before the break, Emily was telling us what we can expect from several senior citizens at Mars. Then, of course, there's Curiosity, which is still in its prime mission. Those guys are just driving, driving, driving. They're trying to get the rover to Mount Sharp before the end of the nominal mission, which comes up in the summer, which is where they really want to get to deploy their, their scientific instruments on the, these clay and sulfate-bearing rocks that are from Mars's most ancient history when it was wet and possibly clement for possible ancient microbial life to be there. Hard for me to believe, anyway, that uh, it's already been nearly a year and a half of curiosity on Mars. Before we leave the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the other RO spacecraft that you, <laughs> you mentioned earlier, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, kind of a fraternal twin, you said they have uh, a lot in common right from the start, but uh, it continues. With Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter surviving as long as it has at the moon, it's now starting to do some of the same tricks that Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has, where it's performing repeat images of certain spots on the lunar surface and has actually caught brand new craters on the moon. And this doesn't only show us a neat new fresh crater, which is which is cool in, in and of itself. It also begins to help us understand the actual rate at which both of these bodies are, are feeling impact craters, which enters into our whole understanding of how old surfaces are in the solar system. So being able to survive so long in orbit is really adding to the value of the science that we can do with these kinds of missions. Before we move on, mention those two uh, new arrivals, the two uh, new sisters. India's Mars Orbiter mission, their very first interplanetary spacecraft, and NASA's MAVEN are both on very similar courses toward Mars. They should be arriving in September. MAVEN is an upper atmosphere orbiter, and uh, Mars Orbiter mission has a variety of different kinds of instruments, including one that I'm very excited about, which is a camera that will actually be able to regularly take whole disk photographs of Mars. So I can't wait to see those pictures. And MAVEN, sort of a double mission. It's uh, going to be filling in for some of these uh, old folks out there, uh, providing the vital communication link down to the surface. Yeah, they carry a communications package that's oh so necessary for the landed missions. One more thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that in December, the Japanese Space Agency is going to be launching Hayabusa 2, another asteroid sample return mission, which is going to be very exciting. We're going to be talking very soon once again with uh, Cassini project scientist Linda Spilker. So we'll, we'll skip over Saturn, except that I would love for you to talk a little bit about this 
earthbound threat to this wonderful mission. Cassini, over the course of this year, has uh, its its mission takes it into an orbit that is above and below the plane of Saturn's rings. That's actually the orbit that it's in right now, and it it stays in this orbit throughout 20, 2014. And from that perspective, it'll get some great views on the poles of Saturn and Titan as the seasons are shifting on those worlds. It also gets really fantastic views on the rings. However, it takes a long time. You have to plan far in advance to to do the science on Cassini's orbits. And there's actually some discussion of ending the Cassini mission in 2015, which would be crazy. But if they go ahead and do that, which I'm going to assume that they're not, but I have to talk about it just in case they're crazy enough to decide to want to. Mm -hmm. If they decide to want to end the mission in 2015, they actually have to change the orbit in 2014 in order to do that. And all of the rest of the science that we plan for the rest of the mission goes out the window. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep up the pressure on NASA, on um, on Congress, and on the executive branch of the American government in order to prevent this from happening because it would be a travesty. Absolutely. All right, before we go on to some things that are still over a year away, I'd like you to talk about this diagram that has come from another one of these amazing so-called amateurs. Sure. Well, it it seems like there are different people across the Internet sort of pick out a little niche for them to to sit in. And Olaf Frohn is is an amateur who started putting together this diagram for me that I post regularly on the blog that shows the current positions of all of the interplanetary spacecraft. And it's just a wonderful graphical summary of what's going on in solar system exploration. And I absolutely rely upon it in order to understand what's happening now and what's going to be happening in the near future with solar system exploration. Olaf also has his own website. He has another set of diagrams that he's made that is a graphical summary of all of planetary exploration throughout history. It's really spectacular. And I think, Matt, you're going to share that link in the show page on planetary.org. I sure am. And the the current version of that current mission diagram is uh, in the uh, blog entry that has been the basis of our conversation so far with Emily. It's a December 31st entry at planetary.org. Emily, why do you call 2015 the year of the dwarf planet? Well, that's quite easy. We have two spacecraft, Dawn and New Horizons, that will spend all of 2014 cruising closer and closer to their destinations. Dawn is going to sight its target, at least as more than one pixel first, and that's Ceres. That's the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. It's a spherical object, or at least a round object, unlike anything else in the asteroid belt. We know that it has features indicative of water on its surface, although that's likely water bound into minerals on the surface. Uh, It's going to be a, a world the likes of which we have never visited before, and I can't wait to see that. At the very same time, New Horizons is going to be approaching Pluto and Charon for the first time. And in this count, you know, I'm a I'm a geologist. I care about planets that have internal geology. And Charon is a world that is going to be, to me, as interesting as Pluto. So we're talking about approaching three brand new planetary bodies, dwarf planetary bodies, in 2015. And it's going to be an absolutely spectacular year. Back to series for a second. Aren't there some who speculate about the possibility that uh, there is... A nice layer hiding an ocean there, as we know, at least we believe we know on Europa and Enceladus? Sure. Pretty much any world that, that gets round probably had some kind of liquid layer at one point in its history. And certain physics, uh, depending on, on the properties that you allow for the interior and the geologic history of the body, it's possible that many of them, including Ceres and even Pluto, could have liquid oceans inside them. 
Well, it's a safe bet that later this year we will be talking again with leaders of the missions that Emily has just spoken about, uh, Dawn and New Horizons, as well as many of the others. I love, Emily, how you close this uh, blog entry from December 31st with your hope that planetary science fans will stay with you through the new year. I love even more the reader who basically said, hey, you don't need to ask us that, Emily. We're with you all the way. (laughs) I suppose I may have been fishing for compliments there, but it's always nice (laughs) to hear them. (laughs) It's great also to be able to talk to you once again at length. Of course, uh, we will continue to do that throughout the year. Uh, This uh, 12th year of Planetary Radio, I might add, and you've been part of it from the start. Emily, it is always a pleasure, and I uh, look forward to also to seeing you at our next Planetary Radio Live event, which will be on the evening of January 23rd. We'll be celebrating the Mars Exploration Rovers. You'll be participating in that. There'll be a live webcast, and, uh, of course, we'll feature it on uh, the show probably for the two weeks following that. So I'm glad you can join us. Thank you, Matt. Emily Lakawala. She's the senior editor and the planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, along with serving as a contributing editor at that great magazine, Sky and Telescope. We'll be back with more from an astronomer named Bruce Betts. It'll be this week's edition of What's Up when Planetary Radio continues in a moment. Happy New Year, Bruce. Happy New Year, Matt. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio with uh, Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. I think it's going to be an exciting uh, new year, hopefully uh, down here as well as up in the sky, but you can help get us started up there. Okay, we'll start with this week's stuff. We got Jupiter just past opposition, so the biggest and brightest it's going to get for the year. You won't notice the big unless you look through a telescope, but you will notice the bright. Possibly. Very bright coming up in the early evening, low in the east, right around sunset and setting right before dawn in the west, as things uh, have want to do at opposition. And you can look to its right for the uh, very recognizable Orion constellation and to its left for the uh, bright stars, Gemini, twin stars, Castor and Pollux. Venus is going through inferior conjunction on January 11th, meaning it's between us and the sun, therefore not really visible. But you might still catch it just after sunset or even before if you're looking in just the right place. And in a few weeks, it's going to pop up in the pre-dawn as it passes to the other side of the sun as uh, viewed by us. We got Mars coming up in the middle of the night. It's going to keep brightening over the next two or three months, so we'll get back to it. It's rising in the east in the middle of the night, and Saturn is uh, low and, well, it's getting higher up in the pre-dawn east and uh, also will be with us for several months, actually. We move on to this week in space history. It was this week in 1998 that Lunar Prospector both was launched and uh, went into orbit around the moon, hunting for ice on the lunar surface. And here's one I found from uh, this year in, in space calendar. The first power tool, 50 years ago, the first power tool developed specifically for space was demonstrated <laughs> in this week in 1964. Wow. And Sandra Bullock uses some power tools in, uh, in the movie Gravity. Utterly true to everything that happens in space, actually. So. You, you've still got that movie really <laughs> stuck in your head, don't you? I really do. A, that was a really quite the segue you've used there. But she did have some cool power tools. 
<laughs> they have cool power tools. And that was the first developed specifically for space. Uh, moving on to Random Space Rack. <laughs> well done, old chap. Well done. Uh, thanks. The Gemini twin stars I just referred to, Castor and Pollux, even though they look uh, all, all snugly up there in the sky, they're actually uh, rather different distances. Perhaps not radically different, but significantly different. Pollux is 34 light years away, and Castor is 51 light years away when you put things in a nice three-dimensional environment. Can I just add, because I've been watching Jupiter, and it is quite close to them, of course, as you've said, and not far from Orion. Of course, Castor and Pollux are never far from Orion and Sirius. It just has been spectacular here in Southern California and uh, hopefully where other folks are too. We have the advantage of it not being 30 degrees below zero when we go out to look. <laughs> yeah, it, it's still chilly, but only on the Southern California adjusted scale. Yeah, the wimpy Southern California adjusted scale. Trivia contest. We'll get to power tools in just a moment, but right now, <laughs> we asked you around what location in space will the Gaia spacecraft orbit? So, the European Space Agency Gaia mission. How'd we do, Matt? You know who I, I kind of wish, I admit it, I wish that he had won just because I love his name and because he's from Mumbai, India. Uh, we did get the correct answer, but random.org did not select Swapnil Saxena. And I got no pronunciation guide, but it, it looks just as good on paper as I hope it sounds. Uh, so <laughs> sorry about that, Swapnil, but uh, you did get your name in the show. Actually, our winner was Peter Carboni. Peter, uh, who hails from Chester, New York, he's a past winner, but it's been a long time. I couldn't even find it. I just know he has. He said that that uh, spacecraft from the European Space Agency will uh, sort of hover around the Sun-Earth L2 Lagrange point, or Lagrangian point. He is correct. A somewhat stable point gravitationally that's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. Uh, just head out a million and a half kilometers or so. Go into an orbit there, and you can hang out there and get dragged along. But you get you get yourself away from all that pesky confusion involving Earth. Although Steve Coulter, Stephen Coulter, said uh, that other spacecraft out there include Planck, Herschel, WMAP, those are retired, Chang'e 2, Chang'e 2, James Webb Space Telescope will eventually go out there. He said they just may need a traffic light there soon. <laughs> yeah, it's a party out there, although that's why they put them often into an orbit around that point. So they're not all trying to fight for that one point. Ken McAdams said that, uh, you know, I guess he thinks it must be really restful because you don't really have to work to hold your position. He said maybe we'll all have our own personal Lagrangian point to relax in someday in the in the future. But here's my favorite. I love <laughs> this one. This came from Mark Wilson. He did have the answer correct, but then he added... If I push the L2 buttons on my lunchroom vending machine, a Milky Way bar comes out. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. You be the judge. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I bet that was planned. Maybe. 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 <laughs> I was tempted by this uh, power tool notation in the year and space calendar to uh, find out. What was the first power tool developed for space? But I don't want to spoil it for those of you who also want to dig into that. So at least according to NASA archive documents, uh, the claim was made, tell me, what was the first power tool developed specifically 
for space. So not not one that they were using anyway for space, but that they developed specifically for space. Uh, in this case, at least what I found was in 1964. Uh, go to planetary.org slash radio contest and get us your entry. You have until the 13th. That would be January 13th of this new year, 2014, uh, Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. And that will do it for this week. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about barbecue sauce. Thank you. Good night. I love barbecue sauce, but it doesn't beat a beautiful woman with a power tool in space. (laughs) He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Can you say obsessed? By the way, Peter, or rather Pietro Carboni, has won himself that beautiful year in space wall calendar. We've got one waiting for the winner of this week's contest, too. You can see it at yearinspace.com. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the revolutionary members of the society. Clear skies and happiest of New Year's, everyone. 